0: Hello, and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton. Along with me on this journey back to the 80s is my co host, Jason Massek. Hello, Jason.
1: Bill, I guess we're not going to be leaving now, right? I'm sorry, Jason. You don't have to be sorry. It wasn't your fault. We better get back because it'll be dark soon. And they mostly come at night. Mostly.
0: That's right, listeners. Today is part two of our special two-part episode based on the 1986 sci-fi action film, Aliens, starring Sigourney Weaver and directed by James Cameron. There was just so much for Jason and I to discuss when talking
1: about Aliens. We had to make this episode a special two-parter. Hell yeah, man. We could make this into a ten-parter. Easily. Easily. It's good to be back with you, Bill. How are you? Good, good. Good. I'm glad we're still talking about this. And I hope I didn't creep you out too much with that quote to get us started tonight. But I thought, you know, in the spirit of this being kind of a suspense thriller uh, slash horror film, even though James Cameron wouldn't like us to call it a horror film, I thought, you know, let's let's start off with a little creepiness, right? Me doing an impersonation of Carrie Henn as Newt. Spot on. Couldn't tell a difference. Mm-hmm. I thought she was in the mm-hmm. room with us. Mostly. <laughs> oh, had some fun doing that quote in college. Yes, we heard, definitely heard that one a lot and many different variations.
0: That's right. We, we would have take-
1: different versions, like as if we were like James Cameron talking about the film, like saying this movie is getting awfully costly. Costly. Are are you feeling a little ill, Bill? You you look a little ghostly. Ghostly. <laughs> I don't even know if that makes sense, but uh, too much fun, man. Too much fun. Let, let's get back into this film, man. Yeah, let's go for it. I still had some leftover initial comments from our first podcast, part one. And uh, I just wanted to get through those real quick. Cover those if, if you're okay with that. Go for it, Jason. We'll yeah, it. absolutely. Well, thanks, Bill. Let's just start with the very beginning, man. The title sequence. I don't think we talked about this in part one. This film establishes the tone from the get. You kind of hear uh James Horner's score with a combination. Maybe it's uh either that or the wind. And it's just starkness and darkness from the, from the beginning and the way that the title slowly appears as the credits are rolling and we're getting the top billed cast. I just have an appreciation for it, man. You know, they don't do this anymore with films and It also harkens back to the original film Alien, where I I adore that opening credit sequence with the way the actual letters appear on the screen, where it's just pieces of the letter, if you can recall. Mm -hmm. And here the color blue is has a heavy influence on this film. And that's kind of how the lettering appears in this blue, like light that's shining through. It's like backlit by blue. And I don't know. I just, I appreciate the titles every time it comes out. It gives me chills a little bit. I'm like, here we go. Here we go. We're going into a dark universe and it just sets the tone immediately. Now, as I believe you did, I rewatched the entire film a second time because this is the director's cut. So we want I wanted to get a feel for the film with all the additional scenes added in to see how it came off, uh, if it felt any different. Uh, for whatever reason, but I, I just wanted to talk about the pacing of the first 45 to f- minutes through an hour. I remember talking about in the first pod, how the aliens don't even appear until about the hour mark. And I still have such an appreciation for the the pacing of this film, man. I, they It takes its time and it's a slow burn in the beginning. And it really, it just, again, builds this dread almost. I'm trying to find the right word, but it it's because obviously there's a darkness to this, this movie and you just get a sense of the, the stakes are building and building before you even see an alien and you know something bad is coming. It's just, and it's coming and there's nothing you can do to stop it. And the fear just starts to creep in and I adore the pacing. And I think the pacing is just really smart in the first hour of this film. So I just wanted to mention that. I also wanted to uh, bring up the Xenomorph design. I just don't know if I gave Stan Winston and or H.R. Giger enough credit because the design of this particular creature is truly iconic. It is one of one and the design is impeccable. The concept is impeccable. So much rides on it, the way that it's shot, especially in this film in aliens, the way that James Cameron shoots the aliens A credit to all of the stunt performers in the costumes, all the different camera angles they used to shoot these aliens and uh, the camera tricks that they used. But I mean, it's the main character, although the antagonist in the film, it is the main character. Everything relies upon the creature, the creature design and the creature effects. If that doesn't work, the movie falls apart. And a credit to what they did in 79 with the original. And then, of course, this in 86, it's just... One of the coolest things, I mean, this is what gets my imagination going because you look at this creature and it's fascinating. I want to know where it came from, how it evolved, and why it does what it does just simply by looking at the aesthetics of the creature and its design. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, because that's one of the amazing things, too, because watching it the second time, I was really just trying to watch the aliens' movements. Mm-hmm. And there may be, and you're really looking for it once or twice, where you almost feel like it's a person in the suit, right? But for the right. most part, I agree. You really feel this is a xenomorph from another planet. Correct. Uh, they're amazing. So yeah, definitely credit to the people that are in their suits. They were fabulous, and just some of the stuff. I don't know how they did some of that stuff in the, in the suit, especially right the way they just uncurl and unfold. Yep. And it's so fluid and graceful. Yeah, it's it's amazing. They must have been, had been like acrobats or,
1: or something. Oh, they were. They were dancers mainly. Yeah. I, I, you know, there is a great documentary just called Making of Aliens on YouTube. You can find it and watch it. The suits that they wore are detailed and incredible looking. Obviously, they shoot with a lot of dark colors and the suits themselves were very stark in color. So you don't see the flaws. However, again, credit to the performers, a lot of dancers. And in the original Alien, they used a seven foot actor in the suit. And in Aliens, uh, there was a lot of six foot tall performers able to get the performance a little bit more because they were acrobats and dancers and a little bit more agile and not taking anything away from the seven foot actor from Alien. But, and then they also used eight foot models. They actually constructed aliens. Uh, that did not have actors within them, but they were pliable. They could be molded and f- moved into positions that humans could not actually contort themselves into. And they could set them up and, and shoot them from different angles. Like uh, you can see in the behind the scenes, the making of the alien, uh, making of aliens documentary. They set one up to be run over by the APC, which is a great sequence in that initial action sequence. And it's just, it's, it's cool. It's the coolest shit, man. It's just the coolest. Uh, but that creature design again is just in truly inspired. I can't get enough. Stan Winston, famous for Terminator, for the effects on aliens, Predator. Predator is another one where it's just, you know, how did somebody put this together? And these guys are geniuses because it stays with you and it stays with me. And H.R. Uh, Giger, man, that guy's mind. I don't know how it works, but if you're a fan of his work, you go back to his most famous, I believe, book is The Necronomicon. And if you look through that, you'll get lost and it'll take you to a dark place, but it's fascinating. This guy's art is fascinating. So check it out. If you're at Romans or if you're at, a, you walk down that sci fi uh, aisle at the bookstore, uh, get lost in a little bit. Don't get too lost. <laughs> so yeah, I think also uh, rewatching it today, Bill, I was just here's just other random comments here. The Sulaco. I didn't realize this until before, for some reason, I guess it was always in the back of my mind, but the Sulaco design itself, the actual ship, it looks like a giant gun. It's a giant gun with multiple bayonets sticking out of the front of it, which is totally appropriate for a military frigate. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just one giant gun mm-hmm. floating through space. I was just like, this is the most obvious thing ever, but it totally works again. you know. Also, we were just saying xenomorph over and over again. Had you even heard the term xenomorph before this film was released? Probably not. I'd never even heard of it. I'm going to get into that a little bit later, break that down. I was like, what is a xenomorph? Is that because it's actually not the name of the alien. Gorman just says xenomorph to generally describe an alien species, something that is unknown. Also, I... (laughs) <laughs> to give a shout out to the moment when bishop is getting inside that pipe shaft because he's got to crawl to the, the colony terminal to patch in and remote pilot the second drop ship great sequence it's one of the most claustrophobic sequences ever because i always put myself in his shoes i'm like fuck no i'm not would never do that or could i do it and he has the great line before that saying you know i may be synthetic but i'm not stupid when he volunteers to actually do that and uh a moment that gets glossed over and never really mentioned, or I, I wanted to give a shout out to this moment when Vasquez hands him a pistol right before he gets into the no, shaft yeah. and he looks at it like what the fuck am I do I need this for? And he just hands it right to Ripley and she takes it because she understands. She almost puts her hand up before and I'm like, yeah, just give it just give yeah. I know you're not taking it. Right. That is a good moment. I love that moment. Here's my this is the most important comment I have. And this will be my final initial comment. Are um, you ready? Are you yes. ready? Brace yourself. Okay. One of my favorite things about this film is that the character Private Crow was played by an actor named Tip Tipping. That's it. Tip Tipping. Which one was Crow? I don't even know which one Crow was. (laughs) Okay. So I'm glad you brought that up, Bill, because I mentioned this in part one, how I would get obsessive about trying to figure out everybody's name who they were, where they were, because, you know, I'm like, I got to know all their names. I got to know everything about this movie. I'm obsessed with the movie. And I was watching it going, God damn it. Who is, who's Crow? Where's Crow? And you see it kind of like in the background from time to time. But here's what I believe is when you see Frost, who has all the ammunition in his bag, right? He gets, unfortunately, lit up and he clips over the railing and falls like three floors and he's on fire. Yes, Crow. Look, is the one that looks over the railing, and then I believe Hicks tries to pull him away, saying, "We gotta go, we gotta go." Before the ammo blows, and then the ammo blows, and you see somebody go flying, and that's Crow. He's the one that gets killed as a result of that of Frost exploding.
0: Yeah, I couldn't point out Crow or Baskey. I like, see um, now. There's right the other go, one because I know Basky? That, that's I'm like, part, who's Basqui?
1: Like, wait, because I, I did the same thing. Because I was like, wait a minute, was that Crow or is that Wurzbowski? And then that guy gets frost explodes. That guy goes flying back and he's dead. And then you hear Hicks going, we've got men down. Wurzbowski, where, you know, Boski? let's go. And I'm like, okay, Wurzbowski or whatever. He's still alive. So that must've been Crow that just died. So I'm putting it together. But regardless, the point being here, Bill, let's not, let's not get away from the point being that the actor's name is tip tipping. Are you kidding me? I love it. I love it. It's yeah. It's where's Bowski.
0: Oh, where's so
1: Where's Bowski? Yeah. yeah.
0: So where's where ba- Oh my God. That...
1: Where's 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 God,
0: that's a tongue twister right there. Oh, I, I was just a though, because the whole time I'm thinking Hicks is saying where's Bowski where he's just basically just saying where's Balski?
1: He's just, calling Oh, he's saying his that you think you thought he was saying where's Bowski exactly like where's no, that's his, his like, full name is where's Bowski where's Bowski uh, he's just <laughs> how
0: Drake, many times have we are this? leaving how many times have you seen this and the whole time I'm thinking where's Bowski and it's where's Bowski where's Waldo? look at that I learned something <laughs> my own podcast <laughs> awesome.
1: you should start like your own a total spinoff podcast called where's Bowski yes that is just about the alien franchise <laughs> That's fantastic. Where's Bowski? Damn it. Everybody else is like, who's Bowski? Did you, Hicks, are you talking about where's Bowski? Where's, I thought they get all confused. I'm right here. What's next, Bill? All
0: right, let's uh, move on to facts and trivia facts and trivia about aliens.
1: Yeah. All right, Jason. You got anything left? You want to go first? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Um, I said I was gonna talk about the xenomorph, Bill, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do it right here. So the alien xenomorph is actually said to be an endoparasitoid. That's what the alien actually is, an endoparasitoid. So, other than HR Giger's original design for the xenomorph, parasitoid wasps are said to have actually inspired the creation of the xenomorph alien they play important roles in regulating the populations of their insect hosts and have been used to regulate uh, our agricultural crops to control caterpillar pests. So these wasps will actually lay eggs in other insects. And then the eggs hatch, killing that insect, giving birth to more wasps. It's gross. Now the difference here is though with our endoparasitoids, are xenomorphs, those actually, they're not impregnating their hosts with eggs, as we know. They're more known as a cancer that feeds off the cells of the host, thus taking on some of the qualities and traits of the host. As we know in the franchise, some aliens, if it's birthed from a dog, will take on the traits of that dog versus other creatures that it would come out of so there's a little bit on the the xenomorph and what the actual xenomorph was based on so that's what i'm going to start with also i'm going to go into this little bit the knife trick scene was originally going to be done by bishop alone but lance Henriksen suggested cameron to have hudson's hand put on top of his to which But I think it was the reverse, right? It's Bishop. Bishop puts his hand on top of. Yeah, he puts his hand on top. Yeah. Right. So that change was discussed with almost everyone except for Bill Paxton. And I guess, according to Henriksen, he remembers a long night of drinking after shooting this scene, followed by a reshoot of this scene. So because I guess originally it looked too fake when they sped the footage up. So they reshot it and he accidentally caught Paxton's pinky with the knife on the reshoot. Whoops. oops daisy which is funny because in the film, actually, he's caught his own. He nicked his own finger, and that's why you see the white blood coming out, basically. But in the actual reshoot, he nicked Bill Paxton. What do you got for some fun facts and trivia, Bill?
0: So we know James Cameron is the director and uh, writer on this film. So how did he get this project? So when James Cameron was set to film The Terminator there ended up being a nine month delay for filming because Arnold Schwarzenegger was contractually obligated to star in Conan to the destroyer. No, Arnold wasn't that big yet he hadn't made the Terminator. So he was kind of stuck with the uh, studios system. So while waiting um, to begin filming, um, Cameron was given the opportunity to write a draft for aliens from a producer with uh, Fox, because Fox finally decided, hey, maybe we should do a sequel to this film. And he only finished 90 pages of the draft before the Terminator filming began. But the studio loved the script so much, they decided to wait for Cameron to finish filming the Terminator with the stipulation that if the Terminator did well, they would give him an opportunity to direct after he finished the script. There you go and uh, luckily The Terminator was a box office uh, smash in 84 and uh, Cameron got to finish writing and direct Aliens.
1: It's pretty awesome that they allowed him to do that. Yeah, that's not something the that, that would, would never happen to... today. No way. They just see Cash and like,
0: all right, we'll just get somebody else. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's an interesting origin of how this all came about. Mm-hmm. But Cameron did. Yeah, he wrote it. I was also going to mention Al Matthews, who plays The Marine Sergeant Al Apone in this film. Love him. Yeah, great. Sergeant Apone. Apone! He was in real life the first Black Marine to be promoted to the rank of Sergeant in the field during service in Vietnam. How about that? Al Matthews. Real life hero. Badass. Yes.
0: He definitely seemed like someone I would want to serve under. Oh, yeah. He was tough, but there was just something about him like if he asked me to do something I'm doing it he's got my back
1: very charismatic and you can see it again uh in the documentary the behind the scenes he talks about obviously his experience as a marine but he was talking about handling the firearms on set and how some of the actors mistakenly would put their fingers on the trigger which he knows from his training is a major no no and he would actually walk up to any actor that put their finger on the trigger and say if you do that, I'm going to take your weapon and shove it down your throat. <laughs> he said that on the set to the actors, and that got him to go take their figure out. Just because you you don't keep it on the trigger. Because even though those weapons weren't loaded, they did have blanks, and the blanks are dangerous. Yes, they are. So that's what he would do. He would just kick people's asses. Here's a little bit of a fun fact and trivia, too, a little behind the scenes regarding Al Matthews. is The actual APC in the film... That vehicle was a towing vehicle for 747s, which weighed something like something obnoxious, like 75 tons. Right. And they had to shave it down and they managed to get something like 32 to 35 tons off of it. Mm -hmm. So it was just this hulk of metal. And while they were shooting, the damn roof caved in. And I guess it it grazed Sigourney Weaver. Could have killed somebody if it landed on somebody's head. But... It was a grave situation. And when that happened, the story goes uh, that Al Matthews just jumped into action. His training kicks in and he was just barking orders left and right, telling people what to do. And the scene was chaotic. It was hectic, but he took control. And luckily, nobody was seriously harmed. And I guess he was quite impressive under that stressful situation. So yes, a lot of credit to, to Al Matthews. Rest, uh, rest in peace, in peace. my friend. Yeah, yep. passed in 2018.
0: So Fox actually had an issue with Sigourney Weaver's salary demand for the film and asked James Cameron if he would rewrite the script without her character. Cameron balked at the Crazy. idea. Yeah, yeah. And Weaver ended up getting her payday.
1: Deservedly so. Yes. Well earned.
0: She probably was underpaid
1: now that you think about it. Oh, no doubt about it. Here's a fun one for you, Bill Bant. The Alien Nest set was kept intact after filming. It was later used as the Axis Chemicals set for Batman in 1989. When the Batman crew first entered the set, they found most of the alien nest was still intact. Wow. How cool is that? Can you imagine (laughs) coming to set one day and walking around going, this looks like weird. This kind of looks familiar. This doesn't feel like the set we're going to be shooting on today, but I guess it is. It looks like alien. Oh, yeah, it is. Oh, yeah. It's aliens. Probably, yeah,
0: probably three years later. Yeah. So, yeah, so about that set. So, the interior of the atmospheric processing plant was filmed at a defunct coal generating power plant. And the plant had issues with rust and asbestos that needed to be dealt with before filming began. So, they had to do air readings, had to be taken multiple times a day just for safety precautions but they found out that the air quality in the plant ended up being better than that at Pinewood studios. So oh my God. They did some impressive asbestos removal at this uh,
1: coal plant. Wow. <sighs> Got to get some hazard pay out of that, man.
0: Yeah. So the crew of uh, Batman should be happy about that. That saved them a lot of work and some money.
1: Yeah. No kidding. So speaking of the sets, and I think I alluded to this in part one, there was a lot of animosity on the set. The British crew was openly hostile to both Cameron and Gail Ann Hurd, producer, because in their eyes, that being the British crew, Cameron was a nobody who had not made a decent film yet. They hadn't seen Terminator and they mocked Hurd, I guess, because uh, they claimed she only got to be a producer because she was married to Cameron. So there you go. Uh, And they wouldn't take orders from a woman. Lovely. Cameron and Hurd, in turn, despised the crew's lazy, insolent and arrogant behavior there were some problems, a little, uh, little tension there on set.
0: Yeah. And that was interesting to me because in the documentary I saw, yeah, there was a lot of back and forth between Cameron and the crew. And I was always like, well, why do they have this crew? And I didn't know at Pinewood, the crew comes with the studio. So you pretty much get stuck with this crew. Yeah. So I think there was something I saw when Cameron had left is saying, I'm never coming back here
1: again, but you guys will Correct. be stuck here for the rest of your your lives or something like that. I'd read that as well. It's a great quote. And he stuck to it. Yeah. He never, he never went back to find what another little fun fact, the alien screams are baboon shrieks that are altered in post post production.
0: Yeah. When I read that, I was like, you know what? Yeah, I definitely could see that. There's definitely a baboon like quality to it.
1: Uh, I wasn't aware of this, but Sigourney Weaver was very open about the fact that she hated guns. She hates guns. And it was a real turnoff for her to come onto set. Even though she had read the script, You know, she came onto set and she didn't realize how the weaponry played such an important part in the film and how they were just, the weapons and the guns especially were just ever present. Mm-hmm. And so that was a, something she just had to to cope with and got adjusted to, but it was something she had to deal with.
0: That's true, because when you think of her filmography, yeah, she really doesn't, it's really the only thing can't think of anything else where she really uses guns. No, she was in that movie. She was a cop or something. Or pro- FBI profiler.
1: Oh. uh Serial sh- killer with. Copycat. With copycat. Yep. Does
0: she have a gun in that? I don't
1: know. I don't know. That's a good question.
0: And then I, even looking at the other alien films, does she really have a weapon?
1: Now that I'm trying to think of alien Three Resur- Alien. resurrection. She probably didn't. I think the point was in resurrection, she's a bit of a hybrid. So, right, exactly. She's just a badass. She doesn't even need a gun. Interesting. Yeah. Now, looking at her filmography, that'd be something to look at. Yeah. And pay attention to now, knowing that she's has a uh, sensitivity. Very anti gun. Here's an interesting story. So, Hicks, as we just now know and, and love the. F- well, I mean, we're fans of Michael Bean. I'm, I'm, I'm in the Michael Bean hive. I'm all about it. But Hicks was originally played by James Remar. yeah, which is great. I just had not known that. and Michael Bean replaced him only a few days after principal photography began. And they said originally that was due to artistic differences between Remar and, and Cameron. But I guess in a podcast called Sidebar, Remar actually states, he's open about it, states that he was fired from the production because he was busted for possession of drugs. He said it was a period of his life when he would develop a, der- a terrible drug problem. And Remar still appears in the finished film. He's seen for one shot when the Marines enter the alien nest. Because he's seen from behind, he's wearing the same armor as Michael Bean. It's impossible to tell the difference between the two actors.
0: So, yeah, it was funny because Michael Bean's one complaint. By taking over the role was all the actors got to dress up their armor so that all the slogans they have on there ah. or the pictures they have right it was all done by you the make actors it their own. sure but michael Bean had to wear what james remar had and he hated the fact for continuity on, of course yeah, yeah he hated the fact on his chest plate there's a giant red heart because ah. michael Bean felt like it looks like a giant targets in the middle of my chest i don't i don't want to have this right but, uh, he had to keep it
1: Oh, man. The role.
0: But that yeah, that was that was the only issue he had about having to take over the role. But he
1: was very excited that he got offered the part. That's good stuff. Yeah, I think he found out like on a Friday night and then had to be on set like that Monday. Yep. And there's a very parallel story that happened with John Hurt and the original mm-hmm. because he was not originally cast as Kane. And it was like a quick he had to step in and over like a matter of just a couple of days.
0: Yeah, there was another interesting thing about the casting, too, was uh, most of the Marine Corps crew came in two weeks early to do training. Hmm. And uh, so they all got to know each other and bond. But because of Sigourney's schedule, she couldn't get there until three days before filming. Paul Reiser couldn't get there until two days before filming. And even the actor who played Gorman. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, William Hope. He also had a scheduling conflict, so he came in late. So in a way that actually almost worked for the film itself, because the three of them are kind of like a separate group. Oh, sure. So yeah, so it almost kind of fit in a way how they all were together and bonded, and then even in the film, you you know you see that opening scene where there's the four of them are sitting alone by themselves. Oh so yeah, it's like already core. clickish. Yeah. Yeah. So that almost kind of even happened accidentally before the filming even started where they came in together, trained bonded. And then the rest of the actors came in, felt a little isolated because they came in later.
1: That's funny. You know, there's another story that I read and this will be my last bit of fun facts and trivia was that to really capture the bond between the colonial Marines. They actually, one of the the shots of them all together when they're just kind of shooting the shit, that was one of the final shots that they got. They didn't shoot that until the end of the shoot. So all the actors had spent however many days, months shooting together. They had already formed a natural bond throughout the shoot. So it made sense to then shoot that scene of them, which chronologically takes place earlier in the film. But now their bond has already been established off screen, if that makes sense. So that on screen, it seems like, yeah, these guys and girls have spent a lot of time together. Uh, thought that was smart
0: all right so uh for my last fun fact and trivia i know we mentioned the first podcast that uh jason and i had not seen this movie when it initially came out in theaters uh, but we did get to see it together later on so back in 2016 on aliens day which is april 26th because of lv426 we went to a screening of aliens uh presented by the alamo draft house and afterwards they had a q a with carrie hen Jeanette Goldstein and Rico Ross, who played Frost. Pretty sure there's someone else, but I couldn't—I cannot for the life of me remember who it was. But the cool thing was, so the big takeaway I, I had from that Q and A was, so for Carrie Hand, this was the only film role that she did. She didn't do anything after this. Right. Yep. And um, so she is now a elementary school teacher um, out here uh, somewhere in California, and she was saying how every once in a while, one of her students will show up to class with a copy of aliens and will ask her to sign it for her dad or, or mom, whatever. Right. And she gets surprised sometimes too, when the students actually tell her like, Oh yeah, I watched this. Cause she feels like, you know, you're a little too young to be watching this movie, even though sure. she play, played
1: a role in it. That's cool. So that still happens today.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And she said, the other thing was like, sometimes she would get really antsy on set. When they had that set of the chute that Newt ends up sliding down, um, when she gets separated from right.
1: one of the ducks, when she yeah, she slides yeah slides out of the flight jacket,
0: so they kept that on set. So that would be like her reward for good days, like you can go play on the slide because she loved going down that side. Uh, sure. So she's like, some days she would just spend all day just jumping down the
1: chute. That's funny, that's great. Got to keep the kids happy.
0: Yep. So that's our facts and trivia for aliens. And I'm sure we could literally do 10 part podcast on just facts and trivia. Yeah. You can
1: just go onto IMDB. I mean, it's well-documented. There's story upon story, which is really cool. It's great. There's plenty Mm -hmm. of information behind the scenes info on this film. Yeah, tons of documentaries,
0: tons of things you can find on YouTube. Yeah. So if you're a big fan, just go check it out. We literally
1: touched on the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, and I would do yourself a favor and watch The Making of Aliens on YouTube. Good documentary, yeah.
0: All right, uh, so moving on to Soundtrack. Yes, sir. The soundtrack for Aliens was done by James Horner. Ever
1: heard of him?
0: Yeah, maybe. And this was his first collaboration with James Cameron who would also go on to do the music for some, some movie, some movie about a boat.
1: Hmm. I know the movie you're talking about. I, I do. Think it did. Okay. Yeah. I have that in my list of the films. Yeah. That he scored. That's uh, that's Titanic. Yes. Titanic.
0: That's right. It. Titanic. Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah. I actually had to sound it out. I with the, I did the enunciation here with the hyphens in between tit and Nick, titanic, titanic. Yes. titanic. Yeah. I guess that was a big movie. And uh, that did well at the box office. So good for him. You know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm glad glad the two of them uh, got to work again. So. Yes, Jason. (laughs) I know. I know you're excited to talk about the music
1: from. Oh, yeah. I mean, always, always, my friend. And thanks for, you know, introducing this segment. But This is the OST, the official soundtrack segment. When I was growing up, Bill Bant, I'd like to say that I was a fan of the three J's. John Williams, Jerry Goldsmith, and James Horner, and I couldn't escape them because all of my favorite films were scored by these three gentlemen. And this, in particular, was James Horner working on Aliens. You know, immediately I'd mentioned this earlier in this pod how the film you hear the score and it's haunting. There's, it's haunting the drum line throughout the echoing horns. Now, James Horner has a very identifiable signature. And sometimes it's like three or four notes with the horns. It's the progression of the strings and especially the steel drums and allowed us whether it be 48 hours, Bill, I was listening to the score from red heat today and I was <laughs> getting flashbacks. I had that on cassette. I'd listen to it all the time. That's a weird score, but there's some good stuff in there. It's a mixture mm-hmm. of steel drums, synth, horns, guitar, saxophone. It's all over the place. And we won't get into the film itself, but I still love that score. I'm surprised they even released that. Oh yeah, sure. And then, you know, doing the scores for the Tom Clancy films, when you get Patriot games, clear and present danger films like that, you can, it's his stuff is extremely identifiable. Good. You know, you can have your opinion on it. I I like it, but I'll hear that. Do-do-do-do! with The horns. And I'm like, oh yeah, mm-hmm. that's James Horner. And you hear it in all of his scores. It's not like sometimes I'm like, wow, he's not even trying to be different. <laughs> and I don't care. I don't give a shit. It still sounds great. Mm-hmm. Um, like the steel drums, 48 hours, like very identifiable, like great soundtrack. You're like, this is urban jungle, like jungle type soundtrack. And it works and it's different. And then Commando comes around, which he did the score for. It's the same soundtrack. It's literally the same score that like some of the music cues. And it's like, oh, All right. Again, not really trying to be different. It works for this too. Let's go with it. Let's roll with Mm it. I'm a James Horner fan. On this particular production, like you said, first time working with James Cameron, it was a fucking nightmare. Let's just say it how it was. He thought he was going to have at least six weeks to compose this. It ended up being closer to three weeks, maybe even uh, shorter than that. The problem was when he arrived to work with the orchestra and do the composing, the film was still being shot. It hadn't been finished. Right. That was a real problem. And it went into editing and he was going back and forth with Cameron. Cameron wasn't a fan of the stuff he was coming up with. And they had issues, which they obviously resolved later on because they would go on to work on uh, much bigger projects. Obviously, I was joking with Titanic, but Titanic. Anyway, they got over it. And I was going to say, regardless, I've listened to the soundtrack bill to death on cassette forever. Funny enough, the score versus the music that's actually used in the film are two completely different things. The music in the film is an amalgamation edit of different music cues. It's not the tracks from the original soundtrack score. So if you are to look up, let's say on YouTube music, uh, the original score, it has the tracks, the listing, the titles... Those tracks in their entirety are not used in the film. There's like bits and pieces that are edited together from those tracks. The only track entitled Bishop's Countdown is the one that's used in its entirety. And that I believe has that famous, that crescendo, that March uh, when you have Bishop's Countdown, when he's rescues Ripley and Newt uh, aboard the dropship, and then they take off and they escape the explosion at the end. And then it's used that same music, uh, that drum, the building drum, is used when the alien queen is basically uh, jettisoned out of the loading dock, the airlock at the end. It's a great, great song, but the music is all over the place. And I think this was nominated for best score too, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So, and again, only the music in the beginning of the film aliens and at the ending of the film is actually used where James Horner had planned it to be used. Cameron took the score that Horner had composed and just chopped it up and put it in the places where he thought it was more appropriate. It wasn't as much up to Horner, thus a lot of the issues. Okay, so to wrap up this segment, many of us are very aware that the music used at the very end of a little film called Die Hard when our beloved Al shoots the evil terrorist Carl, that end of Die Hard, That is music that was recorded for Aliens. That music was never actually used in the film Aliens. That music is actually from a track from the score. It's called Resolution in Hyperspace. So what ended up happening was John McTiernan used that music that James Horner had recorded originally as a temp track for Die Hard, for that sequence at the end of Die Hard. But he liked it so much, he left it in. And in my humble opinion, it works well. It's identifiable because I was such a fan that when I saw the end of Die Hard, I'm like, oh, my God, they're ripping off Aliens. They're using the Aliens music. But they technically weren't. They That music cue was not used in the film Aliens. It was just on the soundtrack. That's awesome. Although it works for that final sequence in Die Hard, it is a departure from the otherwise brilliant score by Michael Kamen. Yep. And it is a little bit off putting if you're a fan of film music. When that James Horner piece of music, that music cue comes in at the end of Die Hard, you're like, wait a minute, this is not, this isn't the music from the movie. Right. (laughs) Because it's very different from the Michael Kamen score, in my opinion. But uh, love James Horner. And if I had to pick like my favorite score, it's, it's really tough. uh, But I probably would have to go with Star Trek II, The Wrath of Con is just, it's awesome. Yes.
0: All right. So uh, moving on to our next segment is the Swiss cheese or complaint department. Yeah.
1: Why do we call this Swiss cheese, Jason? We call this Swiss cheese because although this movie is delicious, it does have holes. I
0: will go first on this. And this is is a little part Swiss cheese and uh, a little complaint. So... Because in the movie, they lose communication with LV-426, and they're going to go out there, find out what the hell's going on. Correct. And you have this huge, huge spaceship, the Sulaco. All correct. Yes. So they are traveling to LV-426 with 15 crew members. <laughs> Shouldn't they have more people on this ship?
1: It's a great point. You know, I, I, that was lurking in the back of my mind when I saw the Sulaco crawling across the screen again today, going, this is a giant military frigate. Yeah. You would think, who's driving the ship? First of all,
0: that's one for every 10 people that are on the planet. We find out there's 158 people on Mm. LV426. Like, say there was some kind of plague down there, who's going to take care of them? They only had, one medical, one medical, and take care of 158 people. Yeah. Or bishops. So maybe two.
1: Oh, I see what you're saying. If the colonists were found in good health or whatever, or maybe they were just injured or whatever. Yeah. They they weren't quite properly manned to handle that many people. Exactly. That many colonists. Oh, yeah. They're way undermanned. It's like, yeah. What would they do if they had found them alive and well or just ill? Yeah. They were just ill or, or, or something.
0: And then, Great point. weird. point. Yeah, I never is, really thought about that. Yeah, and then everyone leaves the ship to go down to LV426. There's no one on the ship. The ship is the Sulaco is up there in orbit
1: by itself. Right, right. They're really relying heavily on the computer system, guidance system, probably to take yeah, over. Like, you know, the autopilot. Just put it on autopilot. You know, it's the future. Everything. It'll be fine.
0: Saiyan meteor strikes the ship and now they're abandoned there. They have nowhere to go. I always right. thought that was weird. I'm like, why did you need that big of a ship to go out to, if you were only going to have a tiny crew and then everyone just leaves the ship to go down on the planet. That made no sense to me.
1: I-, I love it. I think that's hilarious. I think it's great. It's a great point. As I compare everything to star Wars, I think of like the star Destroyers, right? or you think of any sci-fi film where there's a huge Military vehicle floating through space. Immediately, my mind will go to. I can't imagine how many crew members are aboard that ship. Like a Star Destroyer, may carry I don't know, thousands of crew members. I think mm-hmm. it's two thousand or something like that. Or oh, probably more. I don't know. Some of somebody tweet us, tell us. So yes, yeah, somebody's got to be driving the ship. All it takes. And they do it in Star Wars. They do it in numerous films. It's just a, a handful of extras in the background walking around doing exactly menial tasks or whatever. Or you show the bridge of the ship and just somebody hitting some controls. You don't even need to have, they don't have to have lines. They don't have to speak. Whatever. It's just an establishing shot that, oh, there's a crew on this ship operating the ship. And we have a military team that's about to embark on a mission. But two really good points.
0: I understand for the sake of the story, you have to do this. But did Ripley even have to leave the Sulaco? If she was an advisor, right. she would have done all the advising from up there. And then maybe there was a reason for her to come down and further... To
1: verify something in person, maybe. Exactly. But you're right. Yeah, just via video, she should...
0: Or after the Marine Corps gets their asses kicked, then she would have to fly down and, and save them or, or something like that. But, yeah, I always just thought it was weird. I was like, that's it. That's all they're sending is 15 people. <laughs> to check on this colony.
1: Just, that just seems odd to me. I love it. Great points. They should have had more colonial Marines and more people on the ship itself. Or someone for the company. I don't know. Something. Yeah, but you know what? You bring up a really good point, too, though. I was thinking they make it a point. To have Ripley say, You don't need me. I don't need to go with you before she actually goes on the mission with them, which is smart. But then they kind of convince her, of course, to go like, We need your expertise. You're the only one that had an an actual encounter with a xenomorph, et cetera. And she's having the nightmares and she decides, Well, she needs to, she has to go. But you're right. There's really, I mean, if you really want to get nitpicky, what does she, she does not need to be on the ground. She doesn't have to have boots on the ground. No, nope. But then we wouldn't have a movie.
0: Bill. No, exactly.
1: That's what I said. You have you have to do it. So here I'm gonna I'm gonna get my one hole out of right. the way. Go ahead. I'm I'm just gonna give you my one hole, Bill. Uh, <laughs> here we go. Once they're inside the colony. Speaking of boots on the ground, we have our colonial marines have landed. They get off on the APC and they get into what we now know is the Hadley's Hope colony. We kind of touched on this. Well, we did touch on this in part one, Bill. There would be human blood everywhere. There just would be.
0: Yeah, I think there's only one shot that I saw that might have been blood, but you couldn't mm-hmm. tell.
1: Because I understand it It gives more to the mystery of it and a bit of an eeriness of it. The fact that everyone's vanished. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Love it. But I'm sorry. We know too much. The aliens are violent creatures. And if they have an inner tongue that thrusts and po- you know punches holes in people's heads, there's going to be blood. Yeah. And they're not just kidnapping all the colonists. Many of them are being murdered by these aliens. There's got to be traces of blood. Yeah. So that, I think that's, that's a hole for me. It always has been in the back of my mind. They're smart with the fact that they. You, we can tell the colonists have tried to barricade things. There's been uh, explosions from seismic charges. There's been there's signs of small arms gunfire, etc. But no blood at all. I mean, even even the aliens bled, right? They bled acid. There's holes, but there's no human blood. Doesn't make sense
0: unless they have like a cleaning crew that goes back there and the aliens (laughs) like a roomba, dustpan and brush.
1: (laughs) You see the little roombas. (laughs) they're still operational the aliens didn't take those out just as traces
0: of dna and just cleans it all off (laughs) that's great but yeah speaking of the aliens blood because that that was another issue i had too is that the acid for blood isn't very consistent throughout the movie Hmm. because the one scene i was thinking of is when they have the last stand and newt decides to take them through the tunnels. And FastQuest is blowing those aliens up. I'm like, wouldn't the acid just dissolve the tunnel? Oh, sure. And then the aliens would have nowhere to go. And then, you know, it was always convenient where some of the Marines would shoot an alien and then the acid would, would flail on them. But other times, I mean, especially in that beginning thing, the way they're jumping around, they're shooting them over their head. I'm like. and be
1: raining acid.
0: All over yeah. the place. So It's a
1: great. I've thought about that, too. Especially, yeah, watching that initial. Action sequence when they're in that alien nest, there's exploding alien heads left and right and bodies. And fl- yeah, and yeah, again, yeah, no, I, I agree with you totally. Somebody who gets spl- everybody gets splashed.
0: Yeah. And even at the end, when Ripley and Newt are in the hive and she's blowing up all the eggs and things are just blowing up, I'm like, you got debris and you got
1: acid everywhere, everywhere. And they get out of that totally, totally, unscathed. completely. That's funny that, you know, watching that final sequence too. I was like, she she want, you know, single-handedly kills like five drone aliens. But I was going, there's only five. Right. (laughs) Wouldn't there be a hundred hanging out? Oh yeah. Guarding the queen and all of the eggs. I mean, regardless in the, that you, again, in the opening sequence and every other action sequence, there's a million aliens coming after them. You see it on the motion tracker. But when Ripley and Newt are facing off with the queen at the very end, there's only five hanging out. Yeah. I don't
0: know. I don't know. Are all their other the logic fails searching? there? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they were trying to fix the uh, atmosphere pressure. <laughs> they Realize there's a rupture
1: too. and like, Oh my God, we got to fix this.
0: That'd be great. <laughs> he just seemed like clank, clank, clank. Right. They're
1: trying to fix all the holes yeah. that the other aliens have. Co- <laughs> and they're like, damn it. This acid for blood. seemed like a good idea to be now it's just no it's too much work it's too much work. Oh. That's hilarious. But that's you know what that's really all I had for holes because I think Cameron is a smart director and a smart storyteller. I don't I don't find a lot of other plot holes to be honest. I think this the plot's pretty sound otherwise. That's just my opinion man. I maybe I didn't look hard enough. Uh, did you have any other holes man?
0: I just had the uh... One for the complaint department and continuity error, which I don't know if I've ever seen this before. Or maybe I haven't. I just forgot about it. Is Ripley's headset when the Marines are going down to the processor and all hell breaks loose? Right. So there's a scene where she, you know, you find out Ap- Apon uh, dies and she yells, He's gone. And she doesn't have her headset on. And then literally the next line, it cuts away and then goes back to her, and she's like, "Get them out of there!" And then the headset's back on. Oh, yeah, and then she loses. It. That's that was. I was like, "Oh, that's a big one," because I mean, wow. you got you got something on your head, and then it's missing, and then it's back again. So I, I thought that was kind of. Fun. I was like, "Wait, have I seen that before? Have I not? Why have I not seen that or read about that before?" But yeah, watched uh, Ripley's headset during that scene. I
1: think she got gotcha. once once or twice. You know that just makes me think of too with the comms. Because I always get confused as to who can hear who and when when you're talking into the mic, when you have one of those headsets on, because they talk to each other. You know, Gorman's talking to Apone, Apone's talking to Hicks and Hudson and everybody else. And sometimes they seem to be able to hear each other and then sometimes they don't. Is it uh, is the mic always on or are they kind of like are they turning it on and off? Is it voice activated? I don't understand how that works.
0: That's true because uh, there was the one where Gorman sounds like he's trying to talk directly to APOM about, you know, what their, what their strategy is moving back. I'm like, yeah, everyone should hear that. Thank you very
1: much. That's a perfect example because yeah, when she, when Ripley's telling him, Hey, they can't be firing underneath the heating, whatever thing with the cooling situation, it's going to explode. And he's like, shit. And I'm like, Wait, can, he's talking right into the mic when he's talking to Ripley too. Can't every, can everybody hear everybody all the time? I get confused with the communications a little bit. What it reminds me of, funny enough, is Apollo 13, which doesn't come out until years later, but obviously based on a true story, when Tom Hanks, they call it Vox on the thing, when they can turn their mic right. on and off. And sometimes they forget that it's still on. And so when they're talking candidly, they don't realize Houston can hear everything they're saying. So yeah. they could be saying, "Oh, the fuck, they're fucking things up down there." And mm-hmm. They're like, "Um, Commander Lovell, by the way, you're still on vox." He's like, "Oh, shit. <laughs> He's turn it off." That's what it makes me think of, like because out of a lot of them are talking candidly, you know, making fun of each other or whatever. I'm like, "Wait a minute, you're talking into the mic, man. Can't they hear you?" Or is am I not seeing there's a switch of some kind or it uh, maybe you have to, I don't know how those things are activated.
0: Yeah, because that actually makes me think of another scene is when the Marines first go down there processing plant to find the colonists and they decide like, oh, they got the wrong weapons. It's like, why did they explain to them why they couldn't use the pulse rifles? Because I'm like, wouldn't that make more sense for them to understand
1: why they should not use them? Oh, instead of just telling them to pack up all the ammo and don't fire or just making a blanket instead of actually explaining why they can't use their weapons
0: or just turn around you got to come back and get the flamethrowers or something else.
1: Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. You just explained to your guys. Tell them you're putting your life in danger if you fire a weapon down there.
0: Like if they were further in and they found one of the colonists. No, you don't have them step away at that point because, you know, you got to see what's going on. But they haven't gotten there yet. So It's like, why don't you just right, right, right to turn around?
1: Yeah, yeah. We got
0: to rethink this. Right. Pistols and whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ross a, what are we supposed to use harsh language? He's, he's totally right. Oh, completely, it's ridiculous.
1: Yeah, yeah, good point. Here's a little one for you. <laughs> oh, you got another one? I'm going to file some issues with the complaints department. Did Go you want to keep? You can keep poking holes, man. No, I got it. Okay, I'm good. Here's a really small one, but I just thought it was fun. I was just laughing to myself. Is I was thinking, man, they should have put Ripley in in a better room on the Gateway International Space Station, basically we see Gorman and Burke walking down the dark hallway to go talk to her, to tell her that they've lost communication with the colony. And they're walking down this like hallway, there's trash on the floor. And I'm like, Oh man, she's like in the slums on this gateway station. She's like in the ghetto. And I'm like, guys, gateway custodial crew, you guys got to clean it up,
0: clean it up. Where's the room by there. Yeah. You would think in the future. So, yeah, that actually sparks two questions. My first (laughs) one is, how much time do you think passed before they go to Ripley to say, hey, we lost contact with LV426? Because we know she's been going to psych vows, her evaluations, because for some reason, Burke has access to them, So he can write, which what happened to Dr patient privilege like why is Burke get to, to read these I, I'm sure someone needs to read them for the company but why Burke hmm and then, yeah. yeah and then when you said yeah, she was still on the station I was kind of like is she still in the station you
1: no know, I guess so I don't think she ever does go to earth oh I got you. I see you yeah. thought maybe like right yeah 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 no I, I think she's still on the station you
0: No, know, it yeah. does make sense the way they talk about the story but yeah for station yeah it does have a little shitty area like that. That is kind of sucky.
1: Yeah. I just thought that was funny. Like they kind of, they made it a little bit trashy. You would just think it'd be cleaner. I don't, it was just interesting. That there's trash on the ground. No, I
0: agree with that too.
1: Like a, that's like a production designer set design to you know, choice. Uh-huh. Somebody made that choice to put trash oh, yeah. in the hallway. I yeah. was like, I wonder what that, what the motivation behind that was,
0: you know? Yeah. And a little Ricky dink room. And yeah, but I just want to know how much time passed between her talking to the company about what happened and getting decommissioned to right now running to her and saying, hey, we lost contact I'm like a
1: couple weeks, couple months. I, I just assumed it wasn't much time because I think because we established
0: she has a job and she's been working.
1: Oh, that's true. that's a great point. Yeah. Good point, Bill. So it has been a little bit of time.
0: Yeah because it almost feels like it happens the next day, but then I'm like no. but no, there had
1: to have been some passage of time. not yeah. maybe a lot. Because we know then later on that Burke is the one that sent the colonists to go investigate the alien ship on LV-426. Right. And he did so based on the report that Ripley had given.
0: Yes. Okay. I wanted to confirm that. I wasn't 100% sure.
1: Because they weren't privy to that information until they retrieved her. So it couldn't have been that long between the investigation, you know, gathering that information that she had given her report. And then based on that information, he instructs the colonists to go investigate the ship. So it must've been probably yeah, a couple of weeks or something like that. We'll cover this
0: in the next section.
1: Good stuff. Good stuff.
0: So everything else. Oh yeah. Oh, I got right, stuff, go man. I got stuff. Go. Uh, <laughs> I, always stuff.
1: I got got stuff. I think here, here's something interesting. Speaking of, of that, the inquest, uh, by that court of inquiry. I like that. Um, inquest. I know, right? I would like that word. Ripley has written out a report and they make reference to the report as in this unknown creature that has acid for blood and she's like, yeah, yeah, that's what I wrote. And I think it's interesting that Ripley talks to the this inquest, uh, these the, the people around the, the conference table, but then also once She's on the Sulaco and she's talking to the Colonial Marines and she's doing, you know, Gorman says, Ripley, why don't you tell them what they're uh, up against here? And she says, well, this is kind of what happened. Uh, one of these things latched itself to the face of one of my crew members and sort of gestated with it. And I'm going, she never actually tells or describes the alien itself to anyone to prepare them. She just describes some things in vague generalities, yeah. but never actually describes the alien to anybody, which I think is just like the first thing you would do as in saying like, well, it was approximately eight feet tall. It was bipedal, it had like the serrated spiny tail, sp- like spindly features, elongated curved skull. Uh, it has an exoskeleton, not really, doesn't really have eyes, sharp teeth, and inner mouth that thrusts out at such a velocity, it would put a hole through your fucking face and out the back of your goddamn head. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you say that? something along those lines and describing to somebody what they might be encountering.
0: Yeah. I agree with you too. Cause I, ne- I never liked that first speech when she talks to the crew about what they're dealing with. Cause I felt like, yeah, they don't need to know that part. They need to know what's probably down there, not the face huggers but the actual aliens themselves. No, that's a good, that's a great point.
1: She's been face to face. The whole end of the first film is her face to face with an actual fully grown Alien creature, a xenomorph, an endoparasitoid, right in the flesh. I'm like, isn't it just traditional, like police work? We're like, do a sketch. Where's the police sketch? Like, can you draw yeah. it for us? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> it's like just describe. This is kind of what you're going to be looking for. This is what it looks like.
0: Yeah, because then maybe when they go down into the hive. Yeah. Exactly. I a better chance. I mean, they were so well blended in anyway. I don't think. they. Oh, right. You, but- she
1: doesn't know that's basically almost like in their. That's in their backyard. Yeah. That's they're in their element. So she wouldn't know anything about that. Not from the first film, not from her previous experiences, but, but she knows what it looks like. Then they would have an idea like, like oh, that's, shit, it. that's exactly what that's what about. she's. That's it. Yeah. That's the alien. That's what yeah. we're supposed to be looking for. Or at least they'd know what to look for. You know what I mean? They'd just kind of be knowing what to look for.
0: Yeah, they seemed to they were more focused on the face huggers than the actual aliens. Right.
1: Yeah. Which is obviously to be feared. You know, that's something, but it just seemed odd to me. Like, just tell them what the damn alien looks like. I love it. It's so funny. I had
0: so little notes for Swiss cheese in the plate department. Now we're just totally hating all this. I know. Movie. Now we're just
1: this is the worst fucking movie yeah.
0: I've ever seen. God. <laughs> What other, yeah, the
1: was, <laughs> so after that initial <laughs> yeah. it's <a> bullshit movie, <laughs> fucking James Cameron's idiot. Yeah. After the initial confrontation with the aliens in that nest, Hudson notices that Dietrich and Apon are still alive. Like, wait, wait, their signals are faint, but they're still alive. I could, they're still alive. Ripley specifically says they can't go back for them because they're being cocooned. Yes. And then she's the one that risks the whole fucking mission at the end to go back for newt later. It's a
0: kid. It's a kid.
1: I'm totally kidding. I'm just saying, I just think it's, it's interesting that she specifically tells Hudson, you can't go back for, for these people because they're being cocooned when that's exactly what she does at the end of the film. You know, I mean, come on, I'll bring it up again later on. It's like after Hudson goes down, he's not dead. Go back for Hudson. I'm going to bring that up later, actually, in a question I have for you. So All right. that was an issue I had. I was thinking
0: about that, too. I'm like, I wonder if the end when they were getting attacked by that last, if it was the APOM alien, if it was the Worsbowski alien oh. that was coming after them.
1: <laughs> As in a chestburster had already gestated in one of the Colonia Marines and uh-huh. grew into a full grown yeah. alien and was attacking it. At the, yeah, yeah. Why not? That would be weird, right? If Ripley recognized one of the aliens as one of the Marines. Yeah. That alien's moving a little bit like Drake, I can see in his swagger. Yeah. Yeah. Or Dietrich or yeah, one of those. Or tip tipping. Yeah. (laughs) Hey man, is Newt a little cheesy? Is it has she been always been a little cheesy? Oh man. Ah, I know. No? No. Don't feel bad for saying it. You don't think so? No. All right. Give me an example. Why do you think she's cheesy? Affirmative. The thumbs up, the salute, just kind of, it's not You don't like like... the thumbs up?
0: I love the thumbs up. I don't understand understand why they put her in the APC to begin with. (laughs) Keep her back with Bishop.
1: Good point. Okay. All right. If Newt works for you, more power to you. That's great. I always had a little difficulty. You know, this gets cleared up, I think, in the director's cut, actually. I always had a little difficulty knowing exactly where they were just mean general location for, you know, the colony complex operations, med lab versus the actual atmosphere processor and its sub levels. I get, I would get a little disoriented as to what, who's where, and what's going on. That was kind of an issue I've always had. I agree with that. It's not ultimately distracting. Like it doesn't upset me. It was just what like a little bit of a nagging issue in the back of my mind. I was like, i ah, not quite sure where they are. Mm-hmm. And the theatrical cut, when they're trying to figure out where to barricade and weld the door shut in this corridor, I get lost every time. I'm like, I don't know what, what they're talking about. Oh, yeah. I get that they have to cut off the corridor that leads from the atmosphere processor to the actual colony complex, to Hadley's Hope, mm-hmm. but... Then they're talking about doors and got sealed off here, here, and here. And I I don't know if you're meant to know exactly, because they're just kind of pointing at a blueprint in random spots. But sometimes it's a little disorienting.
0: It might add to the atmosphere of the film where you're just, you know, you have no idea what's going on. It's all chaos.
1: Bill, that's fine. Just disagree with me on all my issues. You know, that's fine. No, it's all right. Hey, you know, we don't have to agree on everything. (laughs) hey man how much fucking ammo did they have hicks takes stock of it right he says we've got four m41a pulse rifles they got about 50 rounds each that ain't great he literally says that's not great correct or that's not good or whatever he says and then later on when they're backed up into the operations center there and the aliens come through the ceiling they are blasting away
0: yeah, they should have ran out of ammo by the time they got to the right.
1: Yeah, I get I get to be a stickler now with the ammo issue. When if you're going to give us the whole counter thing, which is a great device in the film, and you're going to tell us exactly how much ammo you do have, then yes. we're going to be counting. I'm going to be paying attention. And I think, especially Vasquez in particular, she she shoots a lot. When the aliens fall through the ceiling and then they get backed up and then into the vents, and she's still firing.
0: Yeah, she, she switches over to the
1: grenade launcher, but then she goes back to just shooting regular rounds. And I'm like, no, she's at, she's spent way more than 50 rounds. Exactly. Oh, I get, it. you know, that's a stupid nitpick thing, but hey, if you're going to tell us how much you got, then use it. What else you got? What else you got, Bill Bant? No, that, that was all I had. Oh, okay, I'm good. Hey, do you think, man, Newt sliding out of that jacket to fall down that her her favorite slide? I'll give you that one. I have an issue with that every time. I'm like, no, you don't need to. She's not sliding out of that jacket. No. She's fine. Don't. She, like, she had to work to get out of that jacket. Yes. Even if she was a sliding out of the jacket, grab the jacket. Yes. Right. Yeah. 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 You just don't go, oh, oh, no, I'm helpless You know, fl- yeah. flailing around help- helpless. Uh, <laughs> I, that doesn't quite work for me.
0: I actually thought of another complete knowledge. All right. <laughs> since we're going let's do it all right so at the end when ripley gets up on the platform and bishop's not there with the ship and they're staying on the platform and we're hearing everything fall collapse crumble and the fact that neither of them get hit by any oh sure whatsoever yeah.
1: no no yeah <laughs> and no no but no, no no yeah yeah, yeah they be electrocuted by something or they'd explode or yeah be burnt to a crisp or the platform disintegrates below them or the queen just comes out of y'all i don't know why the queen pauses why does the queen the queen's hanging out in the elevator for a few seconds like taking a dramatic pause Like just run out and grab yeah this was yeah. funny cuz i i might have said this last
0: podcast so i cuz i didn't think the queen could fit in the elevator oh yeah and the queen could not fit in the elevator. Correct. They had and a to take fun it behind yeah. the scenes trivia right there. They did. Yeah, they, they had take, to take, it take it her tail off. Yes. So I was glad to find out I was kind of right on that.
1: Yeah. Her ass was sticking out of the damn elevator yep. and they had to put like black over it. So when you look at that shot, you can see she's surrounded in black because she's basically sticking out of the back of the damn thing. Yep. That's funny. All right. So I think this is going to be my last issue. I'm going to file with the complaints department. Got it. Very, very final action sequence. Ripley fighting the queen. Opening the loading dock doors, opening that airlock is extremely fucking reckless. Yes. Not a good move by Ripley. No. It's exciting as hell, and it worked for me as a kid, but I'm watching it now, and I'm like, you just put Newt at risk. you protecting Newt this entire time. Like, that's your purpose. You found purpose in that. And here, I just try to reach down with one hand and untie your shoe before opening the damn airlock so that the alien will yank your shoe off and fly out into space. Because when she opens it, all hell breaks. It's like, everybody's going to die. Yes. Everybody will die. You have debris flying around. There's little cargo boxes that almost nail her. Newt almost goes flying in the thing, except for half-bodied Bishop saves her at the last second. He should be flying through the – everybody should be dead.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that bothers me too because, A, why does she have to climb out in order to close it? I'm like, if you can open the door there, why can't you close the door there? And there's no way she could hang on with all that air rushing out. She should have flew out too. And then every time she climbs up to the top and that one box comes flying, yeah, I'm always – I'm always expected to
1: hit her. Just oh, like totally. one time, I just want to see it hit her, like, and oh, knock shit. her out. Yeah. See again, very exciting, but just like, wow, you just you just put everybody at risk by doing that. Yeah. Which is like, what's the point then if everybody dies? But that would, yeah. yeah, that that I wonder if that was the original ending. Everybody I, just gets sucked out.
0: Damn it! See now this brings another complaint because <laughs> because here
1: we go, ladies and gentlemen. We were going to talk about the director's cut. But instead, we're going to tell you why this movie sucks. Our favorite movie of all time.
0: Okay, so technically, she kills the queen by sucking her out into space, right? But the queen gets on the ship somehow by latching itself onto the dropship. And doesn't the dropship leave the atmosphere to get to the ship? So, isn't there does the queen hold her breath that long before she gets on the ship? That she's okay?
1: Well, that's a very good point. Can aliens do, survive? Can, can aliens breathe in space? Yeah. Because you're right. And to be honest, we, we do see the queen. She's still screaming. As So apparently. That's true. You can hear someone scream in space. Yes.
0: which uh, blows the whole premise of the first film.
1: God damn it. Wow. We just ruined this whole. We just unraveled this whole thing. So, yeah, it's funny, though, because you don't necessarily see the queen like freeze like we always see like human being like yeah if you're exposed to outer space your whole your blood your everything you just instantly freeze apparently yeah maybe the alien doesn't necessarily die in outer space i don't know it's a question that we uh, won't get answered anytime soon i feel damn it all right let's regroup man let's regroup that was tough Okay. That was tough for aliens.
0: Yeah, I don't know if we can publish this episode now because everyone's yeah. like,
1: wow, I didn't realize how much this movie sucked.
0: Oh, we're going to get hate mail. I know it.
1: <laughs> Hello, this is Jason, co-host of the All 80s Movies Podcast, with a message from Factor Meals. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's No Prep, No Mess Meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like calorie smart, Protein Plus, and Tito. Factors fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you will always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you will always have new flavors to explore. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Head to FactorMeals.com/80sMovies50 and use code 80sMovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active.
0: So let us move on to the director's cut.
1: Yeah.
0: And we're going to do a little segment called keep it or cut it. So the special edition of aliens um, was released a couple of years later, and it has a running time of two hours and 34 minutes. So that means 17 minutes of extra footage. Mm-hmm. So Jason and I are going to quickly go through the, you know, we're not going to go quickly through the scenes, but we're going to go through the scenes. Yeah. We're going to go through the scenes. And decide if they made the right move by cutting it, or we think they should have kept it. Got it. So the first big scene in the special edition is we find out that Ripley had a daughter. And there's a scene when she's uh, up on the station and she's waiting to do the inquest. And Bert comes in to get her all ready. To talk about what happened to the Stromo, and Ripley asks Burke if she has any information on her daughter. Right. And at that point, Burke tells her the bad news that they did find her. And unfortunately, she died two years ago at the age of 66, and she was cremated. And they show a picture of the daughter, and of course, Ripley is uh, very emotional and uh, she just gets that bad news right before she goes into the inquest. So that is the first big scene that they put into the special edition. I will ask you this, Jason, do you think they should have kept it or did the right thing
1: by cutting it? This is a tough one, man, because the motherhood theme throughout the film is very present. I'm going to, bring this up repeatedly probably throughout is how important do you feel it is to the film? Because depending on that, I believe is whether means whether or not the scene should be kept or cut. Honestly, I'm going to say, keep it. I, I actually like the scene. I forgot about this one when it happened. I was like, have I even watched the director's cut? I'm going, what is happening right now? It's like, wait, she had, Oh yeah, this makes sense because then, her attachment to Newt is enhanced for me. And I didn't feel that this scene was too drawn out either, it was, it was well acted because it starts off with Ripley sitting on a bench and it appears as if she's like in a peaceful surrounding, Uh, she's at a park, but we understand that it's just a a screen of like a park setting with trees and grass and birds chirping. And it's very peaceful. And that makes sense because she's trying to find some peace at this point. I actually like this scene. I thought it was kind of bittersweet. And it makes you think because she's been asleep for 57 years, she missed her daughter's entire life and death. And she sees a picture of her daughter as an elderly woman. And it just kind of messes with your head a little bit. But then I think again it it just enhances what's to come between you know her relationship to Newt, if that makes sense. So that's my take on it. I, I keep it.
0: I'm with you. I would have kept it. I probably would have changed the picture because hmm. I'm like, come on, that in the future. And it looks like a screenshot from a video cam from a
1: convenience store. Right. <laughs> Not a great quality photo, which a no. little behind the scenes info that actually is Sigourney Weaver's mother.
0: Yeah. And then why yeah. do they use a picture of her when she's in her sixties? Why don't they show like, if you were to it's show a, a picture brutal. of your family, it's yeah. a little brutal. Like if you were to show me a picture of your Family? Would you show your most recent picture, or would you show a picture maybe
1: in their prime per se? That's a good question. I think if they had passed, yeah, I would. I would probably choose a more flattering photo. Yeah, a little more complimentary photo. Yeah, yeah. yeah I thought I, I like this again. I thought it was bittersweet because that it just it makes you think because it, it it there's an emotional attachment to Ripley. Then here, but she's going through something here. That's it's it's traumatic. She wants to know what's happened to her daughter. Her daughter has passed away. Her daughter is 30 years older than she is at yes. this point. So it messes with your head because of the timing. And then she tells that brief story about how she, the last time she had talked to her daughter named Amy, that she told her she'd be home for her 11th birthday. But she never came home
0: because mm-hmm.
1: she had gone on the mission. Yeah. Yeah. It's sad. It's a sad scene.
0: Yeah. All right, so we both agreed to keep it. So the next thing, it's very, very brief. So it is in the middle of the inquest. They took out a couple of lines where the company pretty much gives what their verdict is on the findings, and they decide that uh, Ripley has her ICC uh, license suspended so she can no longer be on part of a flight crew. It's it's maybe three or four extra lines. Right. Um, to, yeah, Van Leeuwen
1: does most of the talking, Yeah. Yeah the uh, head of the council or whatever the inquest. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. So they they make the decision right there and tell her what's going to happen.
1: You're unfit to hold an ICC license as a commercial flight officer. No criminal charges will be filed, but you have to submit to psychiatric testing or whatever. Yeah. Right. So keep it or cut it, cut it. Not necessary. This is my opinion. It doesn't uh, affect the story one way or another. The fact that, that she no longer holds a license as a flight officer doesn't bear any weight on the story for me personally maybe the fact that she's been demoted as you've said earlier i understand that that would have an effect on you probably or that they didn't believe her story so to speak and that she's actually being punished for her actions which she was in you know totally in the right it didn't it's just not necessary it's it's very it's minor It's just very minor for me. How about you? I'd actually keep it. Okay. I can see why they cut it out,
0: but yeah, I'd keep it. All right. All right. So the next one is um, a pretty big scene. It is. Yeah, this is a chunk. Yeah. So this is our first look at the Hadley Hope, population 158. So we actually get to see the colony before the devastation. And um, it's broken to basically two scenes. And the first scene is basically two of the colonists talk about how they get this information for the company that they want to send someone out to go check this area. And they're like, why the hell do they want to do this? And um, they're in communication with this group that is going out to this designated spot on LV 426 to investigate. And if they find something, get a claim. And they're like, yeah, sure, whatever. You know, we barely get to talk to the company as it is, but according to me, if they find something out there, they can get the claim for it. And right. then at that point you see that the, like there's kids running around and playing in restricted areas. And there's a kid on them. a big wheel. Yes. Awesome. Pedaling around kind of like the shining, but yeah, you see the colonists there. It's an active colony and things are moving and shaking. Right. So then we cut to basically, a rover that's on the planet's surface and we see it's newt and her family so newt her brother timmy who just happened to be played by carrie ann's real life brother christopher hen right so uh, there's some good casting there so i thought they played brother sister real well and then her parents and they come across the ship so the ship that we see for the first film from alien and they're all excited that oh this is you know this is going to be big for us we found something and Newt's parents decide they're going to go in and check out the ship and they go in and you can kind of tell his passage time because Timmy's asleep. Newt's kind of longingly look out the window, wonder what's going on. And she wakes up. Timmy. She's like, they've been going there. You know, they've been gone a long time. What are, You know, what are we going to do? And then right away, door comes flying open. The mom goes in, grabs the radio and starts calling for help. Yeah. And Newt looks over her shoulder to see what's going on. You see the dad lying on the ground with the face hugger.
1: Oof. rough. And you get the Newt scream.
0: Yes. The first
1: of the Newt screams. It's a chunk. That's a, it's a big scene. And my first thought immediately when I was watching, it was like, oh, wow. They probably spent a lot of money on this scene to have then cut it out for the theatrical release. That must've been a gut punch. Yes. That was my thought. I was like, ooh, that had to hurt. That had to hurt, cutting this out, because that's a lot. But uh, I want to hear your opinion on it first. Keep it or cut it. I go back and forth
0: all the time because I think I like the fact that you don't see anything until the Marines get there and you just see the devastation. So in the back of your mind, it's like, ooh, what happened before? I would love to know. So here it is, and I love it. But in a way, it affects the rest of the movie, mm-hmm. and then we meet Newt. I think maybe if it wasn't Newt in the scene, I would keep. Oh, okay, sure, yeah. But the fact that we see it's Newt because then we we run across her later,
1: right? It's I think it is meant obviously in part to set her character up. Yeah,
0: I'm. I'm gonna cut it. Yeah,
1: yeah. All right,
0: All right. It's not a. It's not
1: a hard cut. That's. A, <laughs> speaking of actually speaking of hard cuts I love the smash cut at the end of it when it goes straight from her scream to then absolute quiet of Ripley with the cigarette dangling between her fingers and the long ash oh yeah it goes from it's a really hard cut I love it because mm-hmm. it's such an intense moment with her father lying on the ground with a face hugger attached to him and she's screaming and it just goes and it cuts right to Ripley
0: yes and I love they still have cigarettes even then in the oh future. yeah Smoking away. Yeah. We think they'd invent something
1: better by then. But <laughs> So, uh, yeah, they should, should have all been vaping. Mm-hmm. Not that that's a whole lot better, actually, as it turns out. But uh, so here's my opinion. I would 100% absolutely cut it. Okay. So you got you to I smoke. would leave this on the cutting room floor. I thought it was the right call for the theatrical release. It's a pacing issue for me. I, as I mentioned earlier, I was setting myself up for this discussion is that the first hour of this film, I think, is so brilliantly paced. And a large part of it is that Ripley is our avatar, basically, as the audience. We are kind of watching the story unfold as Ripley from her point of view, so to speak. We're watching her story unfold. So when it cuts away from her story to go to LV426, it's a little bit jarring for me and it feels like it's too soon. We don't need to see this yet. We're building, building, building. And I love the pacing and the theatrical release because we don't see the planet yet. We're aware of it. We're aware of the threat. We're aware of the danger and the stakes because of Ripley and Sigourney Weaver's performance and how she's trying to explain it to the inquest, how she's explaining it to the colonial Marines. And the Marines don't know what they're up against. And then when we arrive on the planet, we see the devastation, but the crew, the the colonists have vanished and we don't know what happened. And it's completely mysterious. It's extremely eerie. And I think all of that gets dissipated if you have this scene, like all of that, that, that's taken away the level of mystery and eeriness. Also, that feeling of what happened here? When you arrive on a scene and you're just, all you have is questions. What the hell happened here? You know, and all of that mystery goes out the window. You're revealing too much too soon, in my opinion, by putting this scene in. I understand why it's there. I understand the setup, but it's more effective in the genre of a thriller the way it's paced in the original theatrical release without this scene being there in the beginning This is the type of scene that works great right now, like for a DVD release, for a little side story. Like if you're going to watch a little, you know, they did that. They did it with Prometheus and maybe Alien Covenant as well, where they had like David had little side stories that were on uh, that they released before the movie came out. It's Mm -hmm. not in the actual film, but gives you some sort of background on what's happening. So I thought ultimately it disrupts the pacing of the setup of the film. There's some cool stuff. Hey, don't get me wrong. I want to see that alien ship as much as I think the design of that ship is cool, but you know, they step onto the ship. We don't get to see much of the interior. We don't see what happens there. Again, I just liked it better the original wave where it's just a slow burn until they finally get there. And then they have to put the pieces together and we are going along the ride as if we were one of them, either Ripley or one of the colonial Marines going on the mission trying to figure out what happened to these colonists. And that is kind of ruined by the information, you know, the scene here. Um, that's my, that's just uh but that, you know, that's kind of an artistic take.
0: That's it. Yeah. And there's definitely uh, novelizations. And I know I have a copy of the dark horse comics called newt's tale, which mm. tells the story of aliens from her perspective, and it even gets into the alien's attack of the colonist. And it's crazy because in the comics, she actually sees her brother get taken Oof. by the aliens as she jumps into the uh, air vent to, to get away. Yeah. You could read about the stuff somewhere else. Um, even There's even one of the books I think does a deep dive of actually the parents going into the ship and with the experience and how all that went down. So, yeah. So we're in agreement. Got it.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yep.
0: I like it, but, yeah, I don't think you really need it. It just
1: belongs somewhere else. In my yeah, it's a little too much away.
0: Like yeah. You like to see it, but you don't want to see it.
1: Yeah. All right. What's the next one?
0: All right. So the next one is um, when we first see the Sulaco going out to LV-426. Um, it's just a series of additional shots of the interior of the ship, kind of the layout of it, before it actually gets to everyone in the uh, cryo sleep tubes yep I would just say cut it they revisit these same sets again anyway I don't really need to see them in the dark
1: or the fact that there's no one there.
0: yeah so I'm, I'm okay with cutting it.
1: I totally understand that and I'm gonna disagree i I'd keep this hundred percent, but this is totally an artistic choice. It's also an homage to the entire sequence that happens in alien when we we see, shots of the quiet Nostromo right. ship before they awake. And you just get a sense of place. I love that shit. And when the camera moves across the weapon room, we see all the rifles in in place and hold, and then it moves out into the actual docking area. And we see the two drop ships and there's that shot with the chains are just slightly swinging And it's just so quiet, and you just hear those chains. And that again, I think is actually an homage to the Nostromo from Alien. That's just my take on it, where it's kind of like it's just fucking eerie because they're all asleep, and the ship is in the middle of space. And these, you are, you as an audience member now are on board this ship, and nobody else is awake, is setting the tone. It gives me a certain feeling that I like from an artistic point of view, but that's just me, my opinion, my sensibility, and my wheelhouse kind of thing. So I keep it. That's just my take on it.
0: All right. So our next one is Hudson's Ultimate Badass (laughs) Beach. So there's a scene when they're on the drop ship about to head down to LV 426, and everyone's strapped in. And I think the ship is released at this point, right? Or is it right before that releases?
1: I believe. I think this is. It's been released. I think it is dropping through. Okay. I think. Yeah.
0: And Hudson is up talking to Ripley, explaining you have nothing to worry about. You're with a bunch of ultimate badasses, right? And then he basically goes through the inventory of the weapons that they have that are going to take out these xenomorphs that they come across. It's a funny scene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I would cut it because I almost think in a way it contradicts Hudson's character because you kind of see like, I know it's like almost in a little way, a comic relief, but I think the thing we loved about Hudson is he seems like he's such a pussy. Hmm. Uh, Yeah. I see where you're going down down. Like I almost feel like it gives a hint that he's a little bit tougher than we think he is. And I don't, I think it wouldn't make that last scene as effective. So I would
1: cut it. Oh, well, I would totally cut it as well. I mean, I'm in total agreement. It's not necessary. It's fun because we get to see Bill Paxton do a little bit of his improv. He, he's been known to say that a lot of his lines were improv. It feels like this was improv. Yeah. I understand what you're saying though. It doesn't seem totally in line with his character from what we know, how he performs later on, but also uh so yeah it's just it's not necessary but it is all it is i was just thinking in my mind it is while they're dropping through space and through the atmosphere because immediately afterward you see apone does is uh, somebody wake up hicks because they're about to land so i think that does all happen mid air but um there's one little moment in there because when he's are going through the inventory and naming off the weapons like we we we're here to protect you we've got this that the other thing we got these rifles, he says he mentions a phase plasma pulse rifle. And I thought that has to be a nod to a very particular scene in Terminator with Schwarzenegger when he goes into the pawn shop, when he goes into the gun shop. right. Yeah. Because he actually specifically says, you know, I'll take the pistol with the laser sighting. And then he asks, I'll take a phase plasma rifle in a 40 watt range. It's like, Hey, only what you see, pal. (laughs) That's such a great scene in Terminator. So I thought, Cameron had to put in that because Hudson says he goes through, we've got the M41A, we got this, that, and the other. I, we got the phase plasma pulse rifle. And I'm like, oh, that's got to be a nod to the Terminator.
0: Gotcha.
1: Uh, that's, I, that's I, I could one. be wrong, but I thought, hey, maybe I caught something there in that little uh, additional scene. But yeah, I cut it, put it on the floor.
0: All right. Um, so the next one is a the motion tracker false alarm. So, the Marines have gotten on LV-426. They're doing their initial sweep. They're not finding anything. They're about halfway through. And then, all of a sudden, one of the motion trackers goes off. Yep. And you're like, ooh, here we go. About to meet our first Mm -hmm. alien. And they end up tracking it down to a room. And I think it's Drake goes to bust in. And we just find out it's basically a hamster cage. And they're tracking hamsters running around
1: in their little habitat. Right. Yeah, I think it's Hudson. Hudson kicks the door in. Oh, okay. And sees the mice in the, or the, yeah, you're right. Whatever the hamsters in the cage. Yeah.
0: Cut it or keep it.
1: I cut it. It kind of creates a little bit of tension. It's the first time that the motion tracker is going off. It's supposed to be a little bit of a, yeah, just a tense moment. A moment of suspense, a little scare possibly. It's, It's one of those take it or leave it kind of thing. It just doesn't do it for me. I, I cut it. You know, we get enough motion tracker usage to develop that tension later on. That's a, little, a lot more effective than this scene.
0: Yeah. Now I feel bad. That they just left us poor guys there. <laughs> all right. So the next scene, I call this uh, Ripley hesitates. Yeah. So Gorman gives the all clear that they're okay to go in. So the APC pulls up to the front door of the colonist pod and everyone gets out to go in, and Ripley gets out, and she walks up to the door, and she stops. And you can see she kind of doesn't want to go in, and Hicks sees that she's hesitating, and he turns to her, he's like, are you okay? And she responds, no, I'm, I'm fine. And then she finally walks in the door, and the door is right. closed. And then it cuts to the scene where you see Gorman like literally going through the debris to see what's what's going on. Correct. Would you cut it or keep it?
1: I keep actually, I really like this moment. I find it effective in the way that she did not want to come down to the planet initially. She didn't feel she needed to be a part of the mission. Granted, she may be thinking it's therapeutic. She's been having the nightmares and whatever. She's got to face her fears or whatever. But here's the moment. Now she's there and this is it. She's going in again. This is happening again. And she's standing in the rain. I love the fact that it's raining. And she stops, even though it's raining, she's getting poured on and she's literally figuratively soaking it in. This is it. There's no turning back now I'm going in. I find it effective. And it it actually in a a little way established, you know how I talked about, I was a little bit disoriented by a place where everything was. This helped establish it a little bit because in the theatrical release, when you just mentioned how Gorman walks underneath and goes in through that barricaded area, I'm like, that's not the same place that they went in initially. And like, oh, because that was the North Lock. This is the South Lock. And they're entering through this. And it's, it's a little bit more uh, well-established as to where they are in the complex, I guess. I don't know. I keep it. It's not a very long scene. I like it. Well, Jason, I'm disagreeing. I would cut yeah. it. Um,
0: but I do like the fact that it does kind of establish more of where they are. Keeping that scene definitely keeps a continuity error because i mean ripley is basically soap when she's standing oh, yeah. there waiting to go in and then when she comes in she's for sure yeah dry. i mean her hair is like matted to her head at that point that's how far she's out there in that rain and then she comes in and i think it's a little jarring i think we kind of understand she doesn't want to be there
1: i think there was another deleted scene that they forgot to put in though where hicks gives her a blow dryer before she goes in
0: oh uh, okay or yeah. maybe it's got those doors that open up and then the wind blows.
1: It's a decompression yeah. kind of, th- or a decontamination kind of th- yeah. situation with the, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that's actually what I was going to say initially. Yeah, You're right. Gotcha. You're
0: right. All right. We'll agree to disagree. Yeah. Again, wait till you hear the totals when we get to the end here. All right. So our next scene is a bunch of scenes, but we're going to uh, put them all together. It's the robot sentries. Yeah. So you come to find out after they get their butts kicked. The APC comes storming out of the um, atmosphere room, and they they ask for the uh, pickup from the dropship, and there's an alien in the dropship, so the ship now explodes, and they have to recover all the weapons that they have left, take stock of everything they have left. Right. So when they do that initial scene, as Hicks mentions, you know we have this flamethrower, but he says, but luckily we have these robot sentries,
1: right, still intact still intact and there's four of them these are gun sentries these are automatic guns that you can set up on mounts uh like on tripods that are are basically robots that you can operate remotely they're machine guns that you can set up and remote just to just to further explain yeah. to the the uh, listeners what the the robot sentry guns are
0: yeah so the first momentum is literally like two lines in the beginning additional weapons that they have to use against the aliens right, to right. attack them in the, in the command center. So then you jump ahead a little bit to where Hudson brings up the blueprints and they're all sitting around and figuring out like, okay, how are the aliens going to come in? Oh, they come in maybe through this corridor and they may have been coming in through this corridor. So we're going to seal this off and they decide, all right, this is where we're going to put the sentry guns to keep right. us protected. We're going to put yep. two on this side and two on this side, and then we'll seal it up. And this should keep us safe for a while until they somehow maybe find another spot in. So that's where the scene ends. So it's just an additional two or three lines. And Hicks is like, oh, that sounds like a great plan. Let's do it. So then we jump a little bit further in where they're making the barricades. They've set up the guns. And um, so there's like a little uh, like remote control, like PCs that tie into the gun so they can work them remotely. Right, and uh, they almost have like a safety and arm setting. So you set them up. Hudson radios are Hicks. We're ready to go. Hicks is like, all right, let's do a quick test. He arms the one set that uh, Vasquez and Hudson are with, and they just take a little pail or whatever and throw it in front of the guns. Bang, 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 bang! Guns go off. So you see how they work.
1: Right, they're motion sensitive. So the, these robot, these automatic weapons that are robot sentry guns are they track movement automatically they just fire in the direction of anything moving.
0: and each of these guns have 500 rounds of ammunition. Big guns. yes, big big guns. So we cut ahead a little bit then all of a sudden we hear the alarm so the aliens are deciding to do their first attack during in one of the corridors. This seems a little bit quick. so basically you just you just hear everything. You hear the guns and you, you're just basically watching the computer monitor just the bullets just run down from 500 down to zero. You faintly hear the alien screams. Yes. So you yeah. don't really see anything. They don't the show you anything. Attack. Yeah. You yeah, just, the first attack. You're just hearing everything. And then both of the guns run out. And then you, which I thought was pretty cool is like, you actually hear the aliens, like thumping on the barrier, right. trying yeah. to get in at that point. And they're like, Oh man, we might be in trouble, but then it cuts away. I can't remember how that scene cuts out, but they don't get in. They eventually just kind of give up. Because between right. guns and the barrier itself, they're like, all right, we're not getting in this way. So then we jump into the last time we see the robot sentries is the alien's second attack. So they come down the other corridor. Right. And this time you get to see the guns in action and you get to see them decimate the shit out of the aliens, which is cool. Like you literally just see them like pop, 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 pop,
1: pop. Right. Going
0: up acid going everywhere. And once again, it's cutting back to watching the bullets number go down. One of the guns completely runs out at this point, like we're in deep shit because they know this is probably the only other way in. And then the other gun gets to, I think, less than 10.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And it stops and the aliens retreat because they're just like, hey, we ain't going through this again. Right. So it scares them off enough that it's bought them more time, that the aliens need to find another way in to the command center. Got it. So, like I said, it's broken into one, two, three, yeah, like five different parts with these these centric guns. I love the sentry guns. <laughs> I wish they kept this in really.
1: The, yeah, 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 yeah. I gotcha. They are they're cool. This is a keeper for me. Absolutely. It's
0: kind of cool because it kind of shows a little bit of the intelligence or like the hive mentality of the animal. I would agree with that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. As much as I like it, because I'm so partial, because the kid in me loves it. Mm-hmm. I, I love I love the weapons. I love the tech. Uh, the fact that they're basically these motion detector guns that can be just re- operated remotely. Uh, I like the sound design, that initially you're just watching the counters drop. The ammo counters go down, and you hear the alien screams or squeals, and that's it. And it's this the tension from the POV of... Ripley and Hicks and Hudson and Vasquez as they're just, they have to sit there and hope that the ammo doesn't run out before the aliens do. Yeah. So it's a tension build, but then I was like, you know, I was like, we already get to see that effective tool, that device of watching the ammo counter run down. We see that on the side of the the pulse rifles. That's kind Mm -hmm. of a device that's used already. And I didn't know how much these scenes really moved the story forward, but you're right. It is effective in the way that it does show that the aliens have this intelligence then kind of feeds the scene that comes up later when the motion trackers start going off and they're like, how did they get in? How did they get in? Because they found another, they, they had to find another way, right? The aliens had no other choice. they had given up on every other. So they went, they go through the ceiling. So it kind of feeds into that scene later. So yeah, I, again, I just didn't know. I understand why they cut it. Just, it felt like they were just trimming the fat that this kind of, there's a repetitiveness to it, but there's also just a certain coolness to it. Again, with just the tech, there is kind of an artistic approach to it actually with not actually showing the, the second time you see the aliens exploding and getting blown up by the, which is pretty cool. It, it It's pretty intense because you know, once the, those guns run out of ammo, they're screwed. But as it turns out, they get lucky. Right. Uh, the aliens decided to take another route. Uh, so they retreat. Right, I don't so- know, man. This is a tough one, man. I, I wasn't sold at first. I was like, yeah, these, this is cool. But I just, I don't know. It does move the story forward in, in a couple ways that I really wasn't too keen on. before. I don't know. I'll, I'll say, I'll say, let's keep it. Let's keep it. It's pretty cool. We're keeping it.
0: All right. So moving ahead. So there's an extended scene um, between Newt and Ripley uh, when Ripley puts Newt to sleep in the med lab. Um, Newt basically asks Ripley if she thinks her mom got impregnated by one of the facehuggers. And, you know, Ripley doesn't want to answer it. And then Newt kind of follows it up with, well, isn't that where babies come from? And Ripley's like, yeah. And then Newt asks Ripley if she's had a kid. To which Ripley replies, yes. And then Newt's like, What happened to her? And
1: Ripley says, She's
0: gone. She's gone. Right. So, and then Newt gives the, so that means she's dead. dead. Right. And then it continues with what we've seen before. Right. Brief. It's maybe like 10 additional lines. Since I'm keeping the opening scene with a daughter, I'm, mm-hmm. I, I got to keep this one too, because it just ties, I think it just ties the two in. So I'm keeping it.
1: Yeah, you know, there's a point to be made for that. I see what you're saying. I'm cutting it, okay? Because you and I and Marwan will talk about this a lot as writers, screenwriters. It's the show don't tell. I'm still not completely sold as to how important it is, or what does it mean for this movie. I think it has a different effectiveness for different people. For me, I'm not. I don't know where I land on this. So. This particular conversation, it's hard, it's sensitive, it's bittersweet, but I think because we do have that original scene, we understand the pain, the loss that Ripley feels, the loss of a daughter. We understand from Newt's perspective, the loss of parents, and they need each other. They're kind of filling a void for each other. But I think things have been established to this point, and their connection has been shown through the actions it's been shown to us. It hasn't been told to us. It's becoming understood through their experiences together. And I think without this conversation and the way it is in the theatrical release, where she's just simply tucking Newt in to have a nap, and Newt asks about, he says, You know, my mom used to tell the kids, myself and my brother, there were no monsters, but that's not true, is it? And it's a little bit of a kind of this honest conversation between the two of them. There's still a bond that's forming there that proves the point, that it gets the point across that they're connecting. I think this additional bit doesn't, there's a kind of a still a coldness to it. I'm not a, the writing is a little bit off for me personally. That's just my my take on it. I don't think it's necessary.
0: No. Yeah, okay. No, I, I definitely see what you're saying. I could go either way on it, but yeah, I want to keep it. Yeah. All right. So two more. Um, they're both really quick. So the next one is. Discussion in the med lab Um, space. So right. gives a report about uh, what he's found out about the face huggers and Ripley is just like this. How does this really help us? And then they kind of talk into the hive mentality. And this is the first time they actually bring up a mention of, well, there's all these eggs. What's laying the eggs? And Bishop says it must be something we haven't seen before. Possibly a queen. So he literally says the word
1: queen. Right. And yeah, Hudson's saying, Oh, it's like ants and because No, it's bees, it's beehive, not ant hive. Yes, and it's yeah, just supposed to be some funny banter.
0: Yeah, so I would cut that because agreed the fact that they said queen two on the nose it blows the surprise. So yeah. we are in agreement on that one, absolutely. Okay, and then the last one, I, I for some reason, I think will be a, an agreement on this one too. So... This is the end of the movie. They meet up with Bishop, and Ripley says, "We got to go back to get Newt." And she gets all her gear. She's ready to leave. And her and Hicks has this quick moment where they tell each other their first name. So we find out Hicks's first name is Dwayne, and we find out—well, we already know it's Ellen Ripley. But Ripley tells Hicks what her name is, and then she walks right. off. So it's just a really brief. Exchange
1: of the two of them, two additional lines, cut it. Absolutely. 100%. It doesn't work. It's cheesy. It's supposed to be a slightly romantic moment. There's a scene previous to this where Hicks and Ripley get a a little bit close at times. There's no real intimacy, definitely no physical intimacy. But we see a connection between them where Hicks is trying to help her and take care of her, even though she's quite independent. He gives her the locator wristwatch, uh, makes the joke. Like, you know, that doesn't mean we're engaged or anything kind of thing. You see, there's a little flirtation, right? Little flirtation. So at this moment, at the end, she looks back at him and says, you're going to be all right or something to that effect. And Hicks, and he says, it's Dwayne, Dwayne Hicks. She's like, I'm Ellen. And he says, well, don't be gone long, Ellen. Ooh. And I'm like, Hey guys, uh, we got, a, we got a ticking clock issue here. Uh, we don't have time for this romantic bullshit. You got to go rescue a uh, little newt, remember? So it doesn't it just doesn't work at all for me. I agree. Cut it. So here's our final scores here. So out of the 11
0: additional scenes for the special edition, Jason, you had four keeps and seven cuts. I also had four keeps and seven cuts. Ha And we actually agreed on seven of them. All right. So not too bad. Better than I. So think. what this proves is we can still be friends. Yes, for at least another episode of the show. <laughs> we'll see what ha- we'll see what happens right. next week. Yeah.
1: Over or under, Bill and Jason's <laughs> yeah, friendship yeah, lasts nice. two more episodes. Yeah.
0: All right. Um, so that is the special edition of Aliens. So um, yeah. So we're moving on to the end here.
1: Yeah. I had a, a quick uh, couple comments. Now, you know, if you were the director, is there anything you would add or cut your yourself with the way it is? Let's just say maybe the theatrical version. I'm going to put a couple things out there. I, you know, when Ripley goes after Burke and Nashly and says, I know you were the one that told the colonists to go look at the ship and you're, you know, you set this whole thing up. You're a son of a bitch. And I'm going to tell them what you did. I'm going to nail you right to the wall. Very intense sequence. I was like, she tells him that she looked through the colony log and had figured out that he had alerted them to the fact that they, they need to go investigate the ship that has the freaking aliens on it. So he set the whole thing up from the beginning. I would have kind of like that scene, that scene where she maybe by herself goes in, in the operation center, kind of has a moment aside and is going through the colony log to try to put together the pieces. Like, how did this happen? Because they're trying to figure it out. And just kind of just, it could be a brief scene where she comes across this information that Burke is kind of the mastermind behind this. It's just a small scene. It's just a thought. I That I thought could have been a, a dramatic scene that kind of been cool. I like that when uh, you see this a lot in crime dramas where the detective comes upon a piece of information is going through the case files, comes across a photo, a piece of evidence or something that ties things together. They're kind of by themselves. And they're again, just trying to put the clues together. And they come across that one piece of information. It's an aha moment where I would have liked to see Ripley going through the colony log going, Oh shit. It's Burke. Burke is, is manipulating this. He's been manipulating it. Before we even got here, that son of a bitch. And I had another thought is uh, at the very end, was there ever a thought of hinting at another sequel? I would have put it in a scene. Maybe, I don't know what they would have done specifically. It's just food for thought. Like I would have liked a slightly more haunting ending. Maybe, you know, we get them peacefully falling asleep and the, the music is slightly eerie mm-hmm. at the end but maybe a little hint at something dark is still lurking in the corner. I don't know. Just put it out there. I don't know if you had any uh, thoughts about either cuts or additions you would have made if you were James Cameron.
0: I think I would have liked another of the Marines to survive that initial onslaught and then somehow have that Marine die in between then in the final battle, aha. Uh-huh. There's too few of them at the end, so maybe gotcha. One of them, All another right. one of them comes back, and they're maybe they're doing patrol or something like that. And the first time they realize, like an alien somehow snags
1: that person somehow. I gotcha. Sure. I don't know. Good thought. That, that, that's right, my cool. initial thought. That's my initial thought. I gotcha. All right. I like it. Well, we can move on, man.
0: Save Worsbowski. Yeah. <laughs> So I know who he is. Where's Spaske?
1: No, it's where's sp- but no, you're not saying it right. You're confusing everybody, Hicks. I can't believe that.
0: Okay, so that brings us up to final thoughts on aliens. Jason, do you have any final thoughts on
1: aliens? Yeah, I have one main one, and that's going to apply directly to the man Bill Paxton. Uh, do yourself a favor. Go on YouTube. Watch the supercut of all of Hudson's lines. It's great. Um, this movie really uh, propelled his career. RIP Bill Paxton. Love that guy, man. Yes. Loved him in everything he was in. Some of my favorite Bill Paxton films: The Terminator, Weird Science, obviously Aliens, Navy Seals, Predator Two, One False Move. That one's from Marwan. Yeah. Trespass, Indian Summer, Tombstone, Apollo Thirteen, Twister, Titanic. A Simple Plan, Frailty, Edge of Tomorrow. I never watched the show Big Love, but uh, heard a lot of good things about it. That's a critically acclaimed show. My favorite role of his, of all the films, is True Lies. I think he is hilarious in it. He's got a more (laughs) of a supporting role. I just think he's brilliant in it. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that back in 86, he was indeed in an episode of Miami Vice as Vic Romano in the episode entitled Streetwise. Bill Paxton, just gone too soon. Rest in peace.
0: Rest in peace, Bill. That was a tough one to hear when he passed away. That's for sure.
1: Oh, here, uh, this is going to be my other one. The Xenomorph Life Cycle. Well, there we go. This was interesting because you and I, we've talked about this a bit. Uh, It goes from Ovomorph, that's the actual egg, to face hugger, to chestburster, burster, to then the xenomorph, the, the full grown alien as we know it. The question you and I had is also what, what does an alien do with the dead body? What do they do with the dead bodies? We know they cocoon the live ones to be hosts for the chestbursters. bursters. What do they do with the dead? So a little bit of research tells me the drone aliens can theoretically cocoon and use the dead bodies for food. This is gross and disgusting, oh, okay. but amazing for food. Or actually, they can have the dead bodies cocooned. And they mutate into eggs themselves, the actual eggs or ovomorphs. The mutation process is called egg morphing. And it actually is seen in the director's cut of Alien, the first film. There is a deleted scene that was put in the director's cut with Captain Dallas and Brett, that other character. uh, I believe that's Harry Dean being mutated. They're actually mutating into eggs, theorizing that an actual soul alien, like a drone alien could keep the species alive, even if it were isolated, like if it was by itself and cocooned a dead person, that body would mutate into an actual egg. Then that would give birth to the face hugger, then would impregnate another person. And the cycle continues. Uh, The queen, we uh, we talked about this, like how do they procreate? And uh, apparently the queen uses its avipositor, to lay the ovomor- ovomorphs, the eggs, uh, we see this in, at the end of Aliens. But apparently, it doesn't need drones to fertilize her. So I'm just saying that apparently it's all immaculate conception. There you go. So a little bit of little bit of stuff. Some- As
0: Jeff Goldblum would say, "Life
1: finds a way." Yes, exactly. So mm-hmm. uh, I have a couple of questions for you, but then then that's all I got. What you got? Some other uh, deep deep final thoughts. Oh, just
0: one quick thing, because I know we mentioned this in the first episode about Burke, where we assumed he gets killed by the alien when he goes into the med lab. Yes. Supposedly, when they released the Blu-ray version, there showed a scene where Ripley actually runs across Burke, cocooned,
1: when oh. she goes to
0: same Newt. And he you know, Run. complained that he's, he's already been impregnated and he feels the alien in him. And... Ripley gives him a grenade and runs off. I'm glad. I'm certainly glad they didn't put that in. Because the scene, I actually watched the scene yesterday. It's not it's good. Up. Oh, it's okay. Not good. It's not good. Yeah. Paul Reiser's performance actually is not good in it, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they just they didn't release that until the Blu-ray. So I was just, like everyone else, just assuming he got killed at that point. But no, he got cocooned. And then... I guess there's a video game out called Alien Marines, where they actually go back to L V four two six and they actually find Hudson's body cocooned and his chest has burst open. So yeah, he done oh, shit. again Yeah, I know. That kinda sucks. Son of a bitch. I'm telling
1: you, man, I should have gone back for Hudson.
0: But yeah, there's just like
1: we literally could
0: do a whole year on this movie. I think we've done more than enough with these uh, two shows and like I said, it's one of my favorite films in the '80s. You know, when you talk about sequels, this is definitely one of the best out there too. Probably in top five
1: best sequels of all time. Yes,
0: I would agree with that.
1: It's a, yeah, it's up there. So you got que- you got questions? I did. Yeah. Okay. So uh, this is tough, man. Alien or Aliens? I go
0: Aliens, but. It's one of those, if you're alien, I can't argue with you. Yeah. I get it. But I think some of it maybe has to do
1: with the fact that I saw aliens first. So that's. It's hard, right? It's hard. I think it depends on on the day. It just depends on the day. You'd have to, and I'd probably go back and forth. Because I, in my heart of hearts, I think I might go with alien, actually. Because it's the first. I like it being just one that they're going after. But,
0: man. You, you either so, way. That's why you really at. do.
1: And it's, it's, this sequel is just, it's so good. It's so solid all around, despite all the freaking issues we, we came to. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So here's the uh, Ridley Scott versus James Cameron, man. I was just going to ask you, man, not in a fight, but who do you got? Director versus director or whose whose filmography do you prefer? Ridley Scott, we've got Alien, Blade Runner, Someone Watch Over Me, Black Rain, White Squall, G.I. Jane, Thelma, Louise, Gladiator, Hannibal, Black Hawk Down, Matchstick Men, Body of Lies, The Martian. James Cameron, Terminator, Aliens, The Abyss, T2 Judgment Day, True Lies, Titanic, 12 Years Go By, and then Avatar.
0: You didn't put Piranha 2. Come on. That's the one. That, that's, I got
1: I skipped a bunch of Ridley Scott ones too that uh, were not my favorites. It's a taste thing. Don't don't beat me up for it. Oh,
0: man. It's it's tough because you have like such a big body of work versus a small body mm-hmm. of work. But everything that Cameron's come out with is yeah, basically yeah. been gold. Mm-hmm. Um, because actually, one of my favorites is is the one movie that most people don't talk about is The Abyss. I love The Abyss. Yeah, especially the director's cut. That's definitely one of my favorites.
1: I agree. I agree. I love, yeah. I love the, abyss. that's. uh,
0: Yeah. With Ridley Scott. Yeah. uh, I would have to to write down like if I took out James Cameron's film and then put them up against Ridley Scott's top films mm -hmm. just to see where that goes. But uh, I would have to go with Cameron.
1: I'm a Ridley Scott guy. We'll see what
0: happens with the new avatar movies, but.
1: It's tough. I mean, there's so like, if you just took the best against the best, it's almost even. As far because they both made films that have changed the industry. They're oh they're game changers. You just say Blade Runner, Alien. That, I mean that's really that's it. And for Cameron, you got yeah Terminator, Aliens, T two. See, I'm not a Titanic guy. I get, I understand. You can make an argument, and I'm not an Avatar guy either. But you can't deny the the, the effect, the immense effect they've had on the industry. Yeah, as artists. So
0: Yeah, that's a tough one.
1: That's yeah, that's all I got, man. That wow. weren't enough. So we're actually wrapping it up. All right. Um, oh, wait, 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 wait. I'm kidding. Right. I'm kidding. Oh.
0: All right. So that wraps it up for part two of our special two part Aliens episode. Thank you for listening. We will be back next week to discuss the Cold War teen drama war games, starring Matthew Broderick and Alan Sheedy. As always, please subscribe and rate us. You can email us at all80s Movies Podcast at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, or recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook at
1: All80s Movies
0: Podcast or tweet us at Podcast All 80s.
1: Until then, have a totally great week, everyone. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world.